Archiver, the A's in Kansas City, is made possible by a grant for the Missouri Humanities Council and is a member of the Fountain City Frequency family of podcasts. The song you're hearing is Charlie O. the Mule by Kansas City songwriter and rockabilly performer Gene McNone. It's about a mule, but not just any mule. It's about a Missouri mule, and not just any Missouri mule, but one that helped usher in a wild, complicated, and at times maddening seven years of baseball in Kansas City. Charles O. Finley, the namesake of the song, longed for years to own a big league baseball team. And when Arnold Johnson suddenly died in 1960, Finley would grit his teeth and vow not to be outbid. He wasn't. Then he got the mule. And damn, if he didn't name it after himself. Charlie O. the mule was a famous mule. He's probably the most famous mule that ever lived. He had a book, a TV show, a record. People loved the mule because you could ride the mule. You know, you could go out to the stadium and Charlie Finley would ride the mule with you, put you on the mule. And it was a big mule. It was almost 17 hands tall, which is a massive mule, you know. So the thing looked monstrous. I loved the mule. He dressed it in a Kelly Green and Gold Age uniform, and while fans loved it, deep down we knew it was kind of wacky. And Charlie O the Mule, well, that was only the beginning. The podcast is Archiver, The A's in Kansas City, Episode 5, Charlie O the Showman. Me, I'm your host, Sam Zeff. Charles O. Finley, the O stood for Oscar, was born in Georgia in 1918 and raised in a suburb of Birmingham, Alabama. His father, Oscar, was a steel worker, as was his grandfather, who emigrated from Ireland. When the family moved to Gary, Indiana, Charlie, who always loved baseball, became an avid White Sox fan. And from a young age, he was always a businessman. At 12, according to Finley biographer Jason Turbo, Charlie had so many lawns to mow, he hired his first employees. Finley also worked in the steel mills, starting at 47 and a half cents an hour. He eventually would rise to superintendent of the mill, with 5,000 people working for him. It was around that time that Finley started a side gig of selling life insurance. He would turn that side gig into an enormous life insurance company based in Chicago. By the early 50s, Finley was a millionaire with a 20-room house in Gary and a 1,200-acre ranch in LaPorte, Indiana. But Finley didn't have the one thing he desired most, a big league baseball club. They now claim the kid as their own at Philadelphia. In Pennsylvania, he's now like a king on a throne. Call him back, call him back. That's George M. Cohan, the man who owned Broadway, as they used to say, singing a little tune he wrote for A's owner and manager Connie Mack's retirement in 1950. Cohan and Mack became fast friends in Boston when Mack was still a player. Now, we don't know for sure, but it certainly could have been right around this time Finley seriously started thinking about buying a major league team. Finley had the money, and the whole baseball world knew the A's were in serious trouble on and off the field. 
Now, I didn't mention it in our first episode, Fleeing Philadelphia, but Finley tried to buy the team in 1954. He bid $3 million, but as you know, the fix was in for Arnold Johnson, a patsy for the New York Yankees. So Finley lost the A's, but he didn't quit. In 1956, he tried to buy the Tigers, then the White Sox two years later. And when the American League expanded into L.A., Finley offered $5 million for the franchise, but lost out to singing cowboy Gene Autry. Then, Finley got a sudden break that would change Kansas City and baseball forever. Arnold Johnson dead. The bold front page headline screamed in the March 10, 1960 edition of the morning Kansas City Times. He had a cerebral hemorrhage driving back from his spring training game in West Palm Beach. The paper said Johnson slumped over the wheel of his car and the horn blared for 10 minutes before someone finally called for help. He died at the hospital. Johnson's widow was forced to sell the team to cover debt and taxes. And when a Kansas City syndicate couldn't raise enough money, Finley swooped in and finally had his big league team. He pledged his loyalty to Kansas City and its fans. Moving the A's from Kansas City is the farthest thing from my mind, he told reporters on December 15, 1960, the day he bought the club. Maybe not so much. Here's KC broadcast legend Bill Grigsby. I met Charlie Finley the first day he came to town as the new owner. Schlitz had bought the rights again. The Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company, and I'm still on the broadcast team. And they asked me to pick up Charles O. and Pat Friday, his assistant at the Muehlbach Hotel, and bring them down to a party at the Brown Bottle, introduce him to the fans. On the way down, Charles Finley and Pat Friday sat in the back seat. I served as a, a chauffeur for them. And all the way down, Charlie could do nothing but talk about how soon can we get this team out of town? He was ready to move it the minute he bought it, I'm quite sure. More than half a century on, most people believe two things, that Finley lied when he said he was committed to Kansas City, and his aim always was to move the team to, well, a lot of other places, as we'll see. But while he couldn't bring good baseball to Kansas City, he sure made it a lot of fun. Well, you know, Charlie and his promotion sometimes, they did, they did kind of cross the line, you know. That's John O'Donohue, an A's pitcher who came up in 1963. He's also a major character in Jim Bouton's classic baseball book, Ball Four. We'd have to get up real early in the morning, you know, because the mule was coming into town and the, he wanted all the players there. I can remember one time in New York City at the old American Hotel. We were out, out there at 8 o'clock in the morning. We'd had a night game the night before. And we didn't get back to the hotel and get in until, you know, 12, 12.30, something like that. And, and uh, we had to be out there at 8 o'clock the next morning so he could register the mule in the hotel. And you talk about a funny scene. I mean, the mule is walking up those stairs and going in the hotel, and the bellhops are, are walking around behind him with big pieces of craft paper. <laughs> they register him in the hotel. They had those meeting rooms, you know, they were roped off with straw. and It was funny. But things like that, you know, some of the players didn't really like it. Um, but it was, it was good fun. It was good promotion. And, and the A's got recognized all around the United States because they knew the mule. But the mule wasn't all Charlie brought to Municipal Stadium. 
There was Harvey the Rabbit behind home plate that supplied the umpire with new baseballs. Fireworks after a home run? That was a Finley invention. When Finley bought the club, he promised to close the pipeline to the Yankees. All those one-sided trades were done, he proclaimed. Finley the showman bought a bus, called it the shuttle between KC and New York, and then set it on fire to prove his point. He had a covered wagon deliver players to their positions, had cow milking contests, and agitated for orange baseballs. Turns out Finley had a thing for color. He came up with Kelly green and gold uniforms, a shocker, says Jeff Logan from the Kansas City Baseball Historical Society in 1963. You know a lot of these old Kansas City Ace players, and I'm wondering what they thought about the Kelly green and gold uniforms, what they thought about uh, all of this, uh, all of this craziness that uh, that surrounded him with this circus-like atmosphere. Did they embrace it, or did they? They hated f- it. Yeah. They hated everything about it because most of the guys in 1963, when they went to the green and gold uniforms, were the, kind of the old school, you know, baseball guys. Uh, Jerry Lumpy played for the Yankees. He come up in the Yankee organization, and you can't even have a mustache or a beard, you know, and you can't have your name. I mean, it's you know old school baseball. So it was Norm Seaburn and a lot of these guys come up to the Yankee organization. So when Charlie came up with these this idea, I mean, the year before 1962, he had changed uniforms to kind of blue and gray and red and gray, depending on home and away. They were pretty generic. We came to the ballpark and we took infield and batting practice in our regular last year's uniforms, white home uniforms. That's A's infielder, Jerry Lumpy. And then went in um, and changed into our new gold and green uniforms. Everybody was kind of looking at everybody else, you know, and see how they'd look in it. And Nobody really wanted to be the first one to get onto the field. And so we come out of the clubhouse. Nobody wanted to be first. And the guys were in the back were pushing and everything. Get, you know, and I don't know who came out first, but it was a big kind of a silence from the stands. We had a pretty good crowd. And opening day, we usually did. And I don't know who the other team was, but they were up on the top of the steps of their dugout looking, peering over at us to see what these were gonna look like. And we had a lot of uh, cat calls and whatever, not so much at home, but when we went on the road first is when we really kind of caught it from, uh, from the fans, the home fans on the road, uh, because it was such a, a dramatic uh, change. Uh, uh, who, uh, somebody said last night that uh, we looked like a bunch of parakeets running around out there, and that could have been true, you know. Uh, I don't say it wasn't embarrassing to wear them for the first time, but. It, It wasn't too much fun, really. But if anyone could make the ballpark fun, it was Charlie Finley. On September 8, 1965, Finley had rising star Campy Campaneris, a shortstop by trade, play all nine positions at Municipal Stadium, the first big leaguer ever to play all positions. While on the mound, by the way, Campy threw lefty to left-handed hitters and switched to righty for the right-handers. But that wasn't the best Finley player promotion night of 1965. No, not by a long shot. Well, Satchel Page is staying in the ballgame. He goes to the fourth inning. He's had an easy three innings. He's had to throw a minimum number of pitches. He hasn't walked anybody. Went to 3-0 on Yastrzemski, and Yastrzemski pounded a double off the left field wall. So Satchel, with that baseball cap 
cocked jauntily off to the left side of his head, going through his warm-up tosses to Bill Bryan. That's A's broadcaster Monty Moore on September 25th, the night Satchel Page came out of retirement to pitch for the hometown team. Page was 59 years old. Well, probably. He could have been older. Nobody really knew. He signed a contract for $3,500. When Finley asked the right-handed legend who became a star with the Negro League Monarchs if he could go three innings, Satchel responded, that depends how many times a day. Finley played up Satchel's age. He had him in a rocking chair during the game with a nurse rubbing liniment oil on his pitching arm. Finley let the drama play out, teasing the fans with a fourth inning from Satch. But he was done after three. Here's more from that night's broadcast. Satchel Page is on the mound. Haywood Sullivan has gone out. He's going to take Satch out of the ballgame here. So I think this was pretty well the agreement that Satchel was going to pitch three innings here tonight. Well, when he comes out, you'll see quite a hand for him, or hear quite a hand for him, I'll tell you that. So Segui is just about now on the mound. He's been given the baseball. Satch shakes his hand. And here he comes. standing ovation and he has twice doffed his cap to the crowd here and actually bowed to them. The A's players in the dugout standing at attention as Satch comes by their clapping hands. So Satchel Page has done his duty here tonight and what a job he did for the A's. The promotion mostly worked. 9,289 people were in the stands for Satchel Page night. Puny, but much better than the previous night, when only 2,304 people showed up for the game against Boston. While Finley was a promotional genius, he was anything but beloved. In fact, most of his players and employees hated him. Today, I fired Frank Wayne as general manager of the Kansas City Athletics for the good of the ball club. I have now been convinced that all of the rumors that have been spread about the Kansas City Athletics has been due entirely to Frank C. Lane. Charlie, uh, some of the press uh, stories today uh, have mentioned this rumor thing. Uh, What rumors in particular are you talking about that you found out he spread? There's been many rumors uh, spread uh, about my interference with the ball club, with the operations of... uh, of uh, the ball club as far as the manager is concerned. Finley churned through general managers, field managers, and players like few other owners ever in professional sports. And he picked fights with players and writers. Charlie O. the Despised. That's on our next episode of Archiver, The A's in Kansas City. The podcast is produced by Matt Hodap and Linda Haskins in the studios of KCUR 89.3 in Kansas City and is made possible with a grant from the Missouri Humanities Council. Archiver is produced with Do Good Productions, where Nancy Seelan is executive producer, and with the Center for Midwestern Studies, where Diane Moody Burke is director. My thanks for Jeff Logan for sharing his thoughts. There's some cool pics at our website, fountaincityfrequency.com, and make sure to subscribe to Archiver on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sam Zeff. And I'll see you on the next Archiver.